Romans chapter 3, starting verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. God forbid, Lord Jesus, that I or we should boast, save in the cross of Christ Jesus, our Lord, through whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. This is our heart's cry as we come to this text about boasting, that you would put to death in us all that is proud and all that lifts itself up against the knowledge of God and the faith of Christ. So, Father, I plead with you to help me make this text plain, and I ask that you would open the heart of your people to receive the gospel, and that you would conform us to the image of Christ and that we would become increasingly a humble people and a trusting people before you. Let's do a great work in our midst now, in these next moments as we sit under your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The question I want to begin with from this text is why Paul is so concerned about this issue of boasting. Let's get it before us again. Verse 27. Where then is boasting? And he answers, it is excluded. By what kind of law is it excluded? A law of works? No. But a law of faith excludes boasting. Now, lest you think uh, it stops there, drop your eyes down to verse 2 of chapter 4. Just a few verses later. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So boasting is on his agenda here. Boasting is something important. Why? Now, I have three answers to that. Let me begin with the first one. Boasting is the external form of the internal condition of pride. Pride's on the inside. Boasting is pride coming out. And pride, the root of boasting, is the root of all the sins and all the miseries of the world, including everything we saw from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. So what I'd like to do to make sure that you can think 
of those first chapters in the terms of boasting and pride, so this text will make sense, is go back and do a little review. So if you have your Bibles open still, turn back with me to chapter 1, verse 18. Let's just take a few high points, or you might say low points, I suppose, in these chapters where pride is highlighted. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So there it is first. We know the truth. The point of chapter 1 is everybody has access to the truth in one way or the other. And apart from grace, our response to that is not to humble ourselves under the truth and conform ourselves to the truth and respond in worship and gratitude for the truth, but to put ourselves up over the truth and to suppress it so the truth cannot have any authority in our lives. That's what we are like. According to Romans 1, we suppress the truth. The truth comes to us and we take what we like and we suppress what we don't like. And thus we become arbiters and governors over truth rather than humble submitters to truth. So pride is at the essence of the problem from the beginning in verse 18. What's the truth that we suppress? Verse uh, 21. Even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. So the truth that we, by nature, are so antagonistic toward is that there is a glorious God who is to be worshipped and honored above all other human values. And there is a good and beneficent God upon whom we are absolutely dependent like little children. And pride doesn't like either one of those. Pride doesn't like a glorious great God that we have to constantly render worship toward instead of getting worship from. And pride doesn't like to be a basket case or a welfare case or a little child that has to be dependent on a totally all-supplying God. We will be Self-sufficient, thank you. And so pride, here in verse 21, says they don't glorify him and they don't give him thanks. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. So we think we're very wise. This is pride. We think we're so wise when the truth of God comes and we analyze the truth and we take this as true and we suppress that even subconsciously sometimes and we think we're so wise. Pride. If you keep reading in that verse, it says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God. That's how wise we are. The glory of God is manifest to us. We contemplate it and we say, I think I would prefer the mirror. Verse 25. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Oh, pride worships, right? Pride worships. But not God. Pride worships something more manageable. Something a little more like us. Something that will have a little kickback 
for our esteem. You can't escape worship. Self-exaltation, self-admiration, self-determination, those are the forms of worship that are constantly in competition with the worship of the true God who will be exalted and admired and the governor of all the universe. So pride says, no, I will not worship that God. I will worship a God in my making and according to my liking. Verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. So pride says, I don't want you in my knowledge any longer. You do not fit what I want, and so I choose to have you out of my knowledge. I either deny that you exist, or I say that you can't be known, or I twist you into the form of a God that I can get along with. But the true God, we don't want in our knowledge, in our pride. Then in chapter 2, he shifts over from those morally corrupt people to religious and morally vigilant people. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things? So here we have the judgmental person who's quite morally straight, but pointing his finger in a proud way. Do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Morality can become a vehicle of pride, an expression of pride. Putting yourself up while you're putting the evils of other others down. Or the religious person in verse 17 of chapter 2. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. And then he goes on to warn them against hypocrisy. And it could be said of any religious group. It is possible at Bethlehem Baptist Church to make the knowledge of God a means of boasting. It's possible to make prayer a means of boasting. It's possible to make singing hymns a means of boasting. Our hearts are so subtly corrupt. And he warns us in these verses, watch out. Then you get to the end of chapter 3, or the end of the unit that comes to an end in verse 18 of chapter 3. And he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's kind of his summary statement, his last indictment of the human race, apart from grace, is there's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't tremble. They have, we have, such an overweening sense of our significance in the world. Why should I tremble before the living God? He exists for me. I will hold him to account to do what I want him to do. And I will put him in the dock every time he does something I don't think he should have done. The overweening sense of significance that human beings have by nature. This is who we are. We are a proud, arrogant people. This is who we are by nature. We didn't do anything to get this way. I was born an arrogant person. 
Talitha is an arrogant three-year-old. Proud and self-centered to the core of her being, just like I am. This I inherited. I am morally corrupt. I love me more than I love you by nature. That's a sickness unto death. And worst of all, it has alienated us from God. Of course, it ruins everything in the world. It ruins all our relationships. It ruins our peace. It ruins our conscience. It brings all manner of sin into the world, this root of pride. But worst of all, it cuts us off from God because we want to be God. We want to run our lives. And God is a holy and righteous God, and He will be God. And therefore, we are all under His wrath. He is very angry about this condition. You can see that back in verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness as we suppress the truth. You see it in chapter 2, verse 5. We are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is very angry about my pride. So... What's the answer? Hell? Judgment? Is that the end of the story? A proud humanity? An angry God? And settle it all in hell? Is that the end of the story? That's not the answer. The Bible was written. The book of Romans was written. History is written to tell another story. And we've been on it for three weeks now in verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3. And here's the answer. Let me see if I can sum it up for you. The answer of God to this problem of alienation and antagonism and wrath and pride and ungodliness is that God, in the great love with which he loved us, sent Jesus Christ, his son, into the world to suffer and die in the place of sinners and in doing that, accomplish four things. And what's remarkable, remarkable about these four things, which we've seen now in the last three weeks, is that all of them are performed by the Father and by the Son in a covenant of redemption before you and I have anything to do with it. Number one, Jesus in dying for the glory of God upheld the value of the glory of God in the universe which you and I in our pride have so belittled and dishonored. He lifted it up. He held it up. He restored. He repaired the injury which we have done to that glory by dying for the glory of God. That's number one. Number two he absorbed the wrath of God upon himself and thus, to use the big word from verse 25, propitiated God. 
That is, he appeased God, absorbed all the wrath, all the condemnation that was appointed for us and deflected it from us. That's number two. Number three, he paid a ransom. It's called redemption in verse 24. By his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He paid a price, namely himself, his own life, his blood-shedding life, that we might be freed from the guilt and the condemnation and the power of sin. That's number three. And number four, God vindicated the righteousness of God in the death of his son. Verses 25 and 26. His glory upheld, his wrath removed, a ransom paid, his righteousness vindicated, and you haven't even been on the scene yet. That's a great salvation. And it leaves one burning question. How shall I participate? Do I participate? Am I included? Is the wrath appointed for me averted unto Christ or do I pay in hell? Now, let me step back before I answer that question. Because I want want to make sure you understand the structure of where I'm going, what I've done so far. I'm giving you three answers to why boasting is such a big deal to the Apostle Paul. Answer number one has been, it's a big deal to him because it's the expression of pride, and pride is the root of all the misery and sin in the world that has cut us off from God. That's why it's a big deal. The second answer has been, it's a big deal because God, outside of me, before I had done anything to participate, did a huge and massive work of salvation in Christ by sending him into the world and putting him to death on the cross and raising him from the dead. And he did all of that outside of me, without me, so that I couldn't boast in me, in it. I couldn't say, I helped pay the ransom. I helped uphold the glory. I helped vindicate the righteousness. I helped propitiate the wrath. No, you didn't. You weren't even born. So he has wrought a salvation in Christ such that Jesus says, it is finished. And you weren't even there. And so boasting is excluded. Boasting in it is excluded. That's answer number two. Now here's my last answer. And it's burning. The burning question is, how do I get connected with that finished salvation in a way that when I do what I'm supposed to do, I can't boast in it? That's what this text is about. Verse 27, 28 to 30. I just want to make sure you get the question fixed before your eyes because you've got to answer this question. 
Because if you, if you don't answer this question correctly, what must I do to be a beneficiary of that finished salvation in such a way that when I do what I'm supposed to do, there is no boasting in it on my part at all? That's a very difficult question. What did God design as a way for you to get connected that eliminates boasting from your life when you have been connected? Is the question clear? It's not just a question, what must I do to be saved? That's not just the question. It's what must I do to be saved so that when I have done it, all boasting is eliminated. Because if we choose a way to get connected that supports boasting rather than eliminates boasting, we undercut the entire purpose of redemption. Right? I mean, the whole thing is to solve the problem of boasting. The whole thing is to solve the problem of pride. If you design a way to get saved that enables you to boast in the getting saved, you push it out at the front door and you bring it in at the back door. And all is lost. Okay. If the question's clear, let's go to the text and see if we can get, get the answer. Verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Good. How? By what kind of law is it excluded? A law of works? No. But by a law of faith. There's the answer. It's not going to be surprising that chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 are all going to talk about faith. Because faith is huge, is it not? Everything hangs upon understanding faith and having faith in such a way that boasting is excluded. This text says faith. Not works. Well, it says something a little more precise than that. Let's like, let's make sure we, we get it right. Some of your versions that you're looking at in your lap right now don't say law of works or law of faith. They say principle. By what principle is boasting excluded? Is it excluded on the principle of works or the principle of faith? The word is literally law, same word is used in verse 28, works of law, same word is used in verse 31, law of faith. Do we nullify the law through faith, rather? Do we nullify the law through faith, or no, we establish the law? It's the same word. Why, why we should change to principle? I've read enough commentaries, commentaries to to have a sense of why, but I don't think there's any need to. What is the nuance of meaning that is preserved in the word law that might be lost in the word principle? This. I think Paul really wants to say something about the law here. The Old Testament. 
And here's what I think he wants to say. Is boasting excluded when you have a law, an Old Testament, understood as a list of laws to be performed to get right with God? Answer, no. Boasting is not excluded by a law of works. So law of works, I think, means understand the law of the Old Testament as a list of laws to perform to get right with God. If you understand the law that way, it will never put away boasting. It will support boasting. Rather, he says, what will exclude boasting is a law that is an Old Testament understood not as that which teaches you to perform rules to get right with God, but rather as a book which teaches justification by faith alone, apart from that kind of law. And I hope to show you in the coming weeks that chapter 4 is designed entirely to justify that point, namely that the law teaches justification by faith. Just start reading in chapter 4 and you'll see it. Abraham is quoted from Genesis 6. David is quoted from the Psalms. Abraham is brought in again. The whole chapter is an Old Testament warrant for justification by faith. So what Paul wants us to see is, and, and he's speaking into a context of Jews and Gentiles here, which might make it a little harder for us to get a handle on. He's speaking to say, look, Boasting must be excluded or the whole purpose of redemption collapses. But if you conceive of the law as a law of works by which you perform acts to get right with God, you'll never get rid of boasting. You will perform acts that increase boasting. Rather, conceive of a law as the law of faith, meaning this law points toward justification, getting right with God by faith alone apart from works of the law. Now I'm adding that phrase from the next verse. Let's get the next verse on the table. Verse 28. For, he's asking the question, is it excluded by works? He says, no, it's excluded by a law of faith. And then he says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now he's just asserting it there. He's not arguing. He's going to argue the entire chapter 4, that that is true from the Old Testament. But for here, he just asserts it. Justification. A, A person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So burning issue is, what are works of the law precisely? What do you mean? Isn't it good to do works? Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What you got against works? Well, what is wrong with works of the law here? What's wrong? Why should these be apart? Get rid of these things. Zulai Luther was right when he translated this verse by adding the word alone. 
by faith alone. And if you've ever wondered where these big Reformation solas come from, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola fide comes from verse 28 of Romans 3. By faith apart from, that is, faith alone, apart from the performance of any act to put me right with God. Well, what is a a work of law? Let's just trace the line of thinking through 29 to 30 and see if Paul sheds light on that question. Verse 29 is very strange. Let's, Let's make sure we see it in connection with verse 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? <laughs> or did you have eggs for breakfast? Where in the world did that come from? Or is God the God of the Jews only? What, what's the logic here? Justification is by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Can anybody get that? There's an argument there in that rhetorical question. There's an argument there. I think it goes something like this. Let me read the rest of it. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. It seems like his mind is saying something like this. Justification, we know is not by works of the law, but by faith alone. If it were by works of the law, namely the book of the Jews, by works that are tabulated for us in the book of the Jewish people, then they would be able to do them and get right with God, and the poor Gentiles wouldn't have that book, and they wouldn't be able to get right with God. And though it would appear like The division here would make God the God of the Jews, not the God of the Gentiles. One way of salvation here and no way of salvation here. And he says, that's not the way God is. God is one. And he has one way of salvation for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And it is faith apart from the list in their book. I think it's confirmed in verse 30. Since indeed... God, who will justify the circumcised by faith. So now he's picking out one particular work of law. Circumcision. That's the most characteristic distinction between Jew and Gentile. Perform that and you'll get right with God. Perform that. Yes, faith is okay, but be sure you do this or you won't be right with God. He says, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith, in other words, not by that work of law, and the uncircumcised, so they don't have the message that you're supposed to do this, they will be justified by faith. So in other words, the flow of thought here from 28, a man is justified not by works of the law or by faith, apart from works of the law, because God is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles, and there's one way of salvation, and that one way of salvation is faith, not the performance of deeds contained in anybody's book. 
And therefore, it is apart from those lists that we get right with God. So what's my definition of a work of law? What is he up against here that he wants to make sure we don't contaminate ourselves with? What is it that always undergirds boasting instead of eliminating boasting? And here's the way I would put it. A work of law in this context is anything prescribed by the law that you do to get right with God. Or to use the theological word, to get justified. Anything you do apart from faith, or let's say it more carefully, anything you do other than faith to get right with God supports boasting. And only faith apart from works eliminates boasting. And that's why faith is so utterly crucial here. One last question. Why is that? Why is it that work supports boasting and faith excludes boasting? What is it about these two? What's about the nature of these things? That cuts the legs out from underboasting on the one hand and puts legs underboasting on the other hand. And I think the answer is in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where Paul gets down to the nitty gritty of analyzing what he means by a work of law in this context. Here's what he says, verse 4 of chapter 4. Now to the one who works, So he's trying to analyze what's going on here when you take the Old Testament, pick out a prescription, and perform it in order to get right with God. What's going on there? Here's what's going on. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited according to grace. It's a literal translation. Your version may say is not uh, reckoned according to favor or something like that. Same thing. But literally it is... Not credited according to grace, but according to debt or what you are due. That's why it undergirds boasting. You see what happens? What you're saying is, if you take a work of law from the Old Testament, say, don't commit adultery or don't steal, don't lie, don't kill. Worship God by going to church on Sunday. Read your Bible. Pray. If you take any one of those good deeds and now do it to get justified, to get right with God, alongside of or instead of faith, you do not exclude boasting because, verse 4 says, it is like working for a wage And when you get a wage, that is, if God were to justify you, it wouldn't exclude boasting. And God means to exclude boasting. God means to exclude boasting. Which is why works have to go. 
as a means of justification. The alternative is given in verse 5. What should you do then to get justified? Wow, if I'm not supposed to perform any of the lists in the Bible, what are you supposed to do to get right with God, to solve this massive problem of pride and corruption and sin and alienation? And the answer is, but to the one who does not work, that's your first negative requirement, cease striving. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. You can't make yourself godly and impressive to God to get justified. Justification has to precede your getting fixed. You will never get fixed if you are not first justified. But to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So now I think we can explain why faith gets rid of boasting and works doesn't. I put it like this. Works calls attention to what I do and my quality in doing it that God should recognize and respond to appropriately. And if I choose to get connected with God's finished work of salvation that way, I am damned forever. And I will boast all the way to hell in my goodness. But faith does not call attention to itself. Faith calls attention to grace. To the one who works, his wage is not reckoned according to grace. If you attempt to work for God, to get right with God, you nullify grace. And you reinsert boasting. But faith doesn't do that. Faith has eyes for grace and grace alone. Somebody asked after the first service, I knew they would, I knew they would. But I chose not to answer the question, but I'm going to answer it here. Because two people asked it, and now I'm persuaded I probably should have answered it. Why can't I boast in my faith? There are two answers to that. They're not in my sermon. They are blazoned in my mind. Answer number one. I think this is in the text. It belongs to the nature of faith that it does not look at itself, but at grace. So that the very moment that you step outside of your believing heart and turn around and begin to look at your believing heart and feel good about your believing heart and that you have performed this believing heart, it's no more faith. Faith does not do that. Faith steadfastly will not look at itself and feel good about itself as though it performed itself. It will not do that. Faith looks only to grace. That's the meaning of faith. It's the definition of grace. It's uh, of faith. It's the, it's the essence of faith that it reaches out and loves grace 
receives grace. That's answer number one. Answer number two is not in this text, but is in other texts, like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Namely, you can't boast in your faith because your faith is a gift of God. We are Calvinists. The name means nothing to us. The reality that my faith is a gift means the world to me. And it is the last removal of boasting. I'm a Calvinist because I want a theology that removes all grounds of human boasting. And the last removal is the sovereignty of God in the free and unconditional giving of faith to whom he pleases. Now, let me close with this exhortation. God is at work in this room right now. Did you know that? God is here, and he's not just stocking heads with thoughts. He's opening you to vistas of enjoyment of his grace that some of you have never tasted before. A panorama of free grace in which you can swim like a dolphin in the ocean without ever getting to the bottom of it or the end of it. And I would plead with you, renounce all self-reliance, renounce all self-exaltation, renounce all self-admiration, renounce, yes, all self-determination. Just renounce it right now and say, God, if you leave me to myself to either perform deeds or do faith, I'm a goner because I'm proud to the core. I'm corrupt to the bottom of my being. I hate authority. I hate dependence. I hate childlikeness. I want to be somebody. And I don't like you telling me how to be or what to be. And if you leave me, I'll die and perish. So come. And right now, grant me to believe. Like it says in Philippians 1, 29, it is granted to us not only to suffer, but to believe. It is granted to us, given to us. The underlying principle here is 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive, believer? And if you received it, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Nothing. You have nothing that is not a gift. So, receive it. 
receive it. Don't look at yourself. Look at grace. Look at grace. Let's pray. Oh God, work, I pray, mightily to save sinners in this service. Some perhaps who have been in church their whole life and have never understood the gospel. Have never understood how to get right with a holy God as a proud sinner. By faith alone, apart from works of the law. Would you shed light on our hearts right now and cause us to see the glory of Christ in the gospel? Who upheld your glory, absorbed our condemnation, paid our ransom, vindicated your righteousness all before we were ever on the scene. And now we are brought into it through justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. O oh God, perform for us now the application of our redemption, just as you performed for us the accomplishment of our redemption. And save sinners in this room through faith. My closing exhortation is, let's be a humble people. Would you pray for me? I'm a proud man by nature. I am not humble by nature. I, I pray to God almost every day, at any cost to my health, at any cost to my ministry, at any cost to my family, kill my pride. That's a risky prayer. Would you pray it with me? Just pray it. And then may God make us a humble people toward each other. So when you walk out, if somebody walks by you and didn't see you, don't seethe inside. Be thankful you're alive. Be thankful you know Jesus. If you get to your car and there's a nick on the door, don't get angry. Give thanks you got a car. Let's be a humble people. Let's live on grace. You're dismissed.